This podcast was originally scheduled for February 17th, 2010. It's the Jeff Glass and Blue Gal Podcast. miss intellectual conservatives i do i really <laughs> they're do. gone I, man they're just I, gone yeah. i i've <laughs> i've said before and i will say again that you know i think it's too late frankly but half joking i used to say that barack obama's number one problem the number one project is going to be the salvation of the republican party yeah because the republican party are just are, are a complete cultural dead loss yeah. there's nothing there anymore well, I've been reading the most depressing article I think well, I've ever read. Hey, hey, good evening to you, blue gal. <laughs> hey, hi, Driftglass. How are you? Uh, I'm well. I'm about to be apparently incredibly depressed. Yeah, I, we've been talking about this article in the Atlantic Monthly. And it, about, people should know it's Wednesday, February seventeenth. Uh, happy birthday, Dad! It's my dad's birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Mr. Blue Gal! Yeah, Papa Blue Gal, who is familiar with Skype and Photoshop, and he's an artist in Pittsburgh, and he's awesome. He's just, wow. He's, he, he, and he's uh, in his seventies, and he's still he's in his seventies. and Jazz, he's familiar, it's jazz, baby. Jazz and, keeps you. And young. he's familiar with our internet traditions. He is so. familiar with internet traditions, and wow, knows how to make a Skype call, and you know. So, so he's, he's, sort of the, he's he's older than John McCain, and he knows how to do all this stuff. It kind of makes you so wonder, the, doesn't it? He's the anti-David Broder, is he? He is. Yes. Well, good for you. Way yeah, to go. Yeah, he's a very cool guy. Uh, so I've been reading so. this incredibly depressing article. I'm going to giggle all the way through now. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> nothing says depression like he, 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 Yes, yeah. right. Uh, about the new jobless era and how it will transform America. Yes. And... Uh, you and I talked earlier this week about something that um, actually listening to NPR later after we talked, uh, I, something jumped out at me, which is someone who was in the construction industry was asked about the job picture and said, well, I really hate laying people off because, you know, we're a family. Right, right. And you and I had talked about that, the workplace <laughs> yeah. as family. Workplace as as the new family. And certainly on television. That's what we're expected to. Oh yeah. To think. Yeah. You can absolutely see, um, both in real life and on television, the the um, evolution or devolution of the family from what it once was, which was a um, not universally, mind you, there were, there have always been cities um, or rather, rather large families living in small towns. I'm sorry, I'm dealing with the castle cat here, who would also like my attention. Is, is a Chicago cat, a Chicago street cat, so you don't she, screw she with the castle to, cat. She likes to chase down keys off your keyboard from what you've written. Yeah, yeah, she <laughs> she uh, she will she will screw with you. Man, yeah, you know, she looks at the keyboard and you know gives you that look like you know it sure be a pity if that got broke. You know, you know, <laughs> That's Chicago, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, things, things get lost, you know. Yeah. Uh, email gets stolen. What can you say? So as as we were talking about, um, once upon a time. It, it was the case where the norm was a relatively small town with relatively large families. And you had a really kind of stable 
system. You You're had talking a, a system about America. You're not talking about America. TV. Yes. Yeah, well, sort of on TV as well. I mean, you know, it, it it never was that way on television, but you can still see vestiges of it in, like, Little House on the Prairie, mm -hmm. um, or The Waltons. Those are really the only two examples I can think of. But, but television gave rise to the to the normalization of the nuclear family. And I would argue the normalization of the broken nuclear family. Mm -hmm. If you look um, at the television shows of the 60s and 70s and just start ticking them off in your head from the courts of everybody's father to Bonanza to Julia, which is uh, these are programs that some of our listeners probably have never heard of before. Mm -hmm. But if you go right down the list, the the vast majority of family programming during what would I would consider my formative years mm -hmm. was about broken families. Mm -hmm. Yes. Families with one parent, families with the widows and widowers, since divorce was a little taboo. But it was clearly nuclear, but it was also subnuclear. It was broken or it was Ralph Cramden and Alice. Um, you know, and, and norms were um were being established back then. And also in the real world it got to be, you know, I would argue probably post World War Two, but the trends were certainly there before the war, that you had a, a massive movement away from the normal family being a large structure in a small town to being a very, very small structure in a suburb. Mm -hmm. That's why I, I say that, you know, half, half in, in jest that Dwight David Eisenhower destroyed America. Interstate highway system. Yeah, Dwight Eisenhower created, you know, the, the interstate highway system, which is a fine thing, but it made mobility much more normal. There was a, a, a military hierarchy that came into the corporate world that Again, the corporations were always hierarchical, but it became the norm that you have these very large multinational corporations, multi-billion dollar corporations that expected to be able to move people around. Mm -hmm. And so you can't do that with a, with a large family in a small town, but you can do it with two parents and you know 2.2 children and a station wagon. Mm -hmm. And so the normal family became this nuclear creature. And I would argue that that form of family is inherently unstable. In fact, it can only survive in, a, in the very rarefied environment of a eternal boom times. Um, it can only survive during a prosperous era. Mm -hmm. So you had America prospering during the 50s and 60s. You had the post-war boom when the rest of the world's industrial base was destroyed. And you had America just, just going great guns. Well, when wages constantly rise and there's a big middle class who are all feeling very secure and, and very you know wealthy in a sense, certainly wealthier than their parents or grandparents ever were, you can get away with having a nuclear family being the norm. Because if you think of a family as a machine, stripped of all of its religious or cultural characteristics, if, it's, if you just think of a family as a machine, it does two things, it, it, and only two things really. It provides for the economic security of the family unit, and it raises children. And so single-parent families are legitimate families, and gay families are legitimate families. Any, you know, anything you can think of that fits the description of something that protects itself economically and sustains itself economically and creates the next generation of itself is a legitimate interpretation of a family, a legitimate vision of a family. Well, the nuclear family is this bizarre aberration that as the norm is a really bizarre aberration because it only 
it's only stable when you can support the family with one income. The minute you have to have two people in the workforce, the nuclear family starts to fall apart. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue it has nothing to do with civil rights. It has nothing to do with the 60s per se. It has to do much more with the recession and oil shock of the 70s. Mm -hmm. So you have this economically fragile structure that we rest our entire civilization on. And for about 20, 25 years, the post-war years, we invented all this mythology around why we were rich. We're rich because God loves us. We're rich because we're ingenious. We're rich because um, we're just great people. We're rich because of capitalism. No, we were rich because we had abundant natural resources. We had cheap labor. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world's industrial you know, had no, capacity had, no had been just. Exactly, had been destroyed. And there was a tremendous pent-up consumer demand. Oh, absolutely. From the Depression uh, and the war, both. From the Depression and the war, you had this, exactly, you had this huge demand built into the system. Right. And so you have an America that is suddenly considers it completely normal to be rich, mm -hmm. completely normal to have a small family that is mobile, that moves to a suburb maybe hundreds or thousands of miles away from where you're, where you're, the rest of your family lives. And you, you see that the traditional support structures, the traditional things that make families stable, mm -hmm. the ability to have aunts and uncles and neighbors around you to support you when things go wrong, all those things get trashed because they're not mobile. And so you, you have the family being sweated down to this individual unit, this irreducible minimum mm -hmm. that, again, works really great as long as everybody's getting rich and everybody's getting raises and everything's fine. Mm -hmm. But the minute the economy tanks, you see the family starting to fall apart. As you say, that's a rarefied economic Absolutely. structure that isn't normal no. <laughs> in, no, but in, we, world, in world events. But we, we built up, a, as you say, a mythology that said, well, this is the American dream. This is the American absolutely. life. Exactly. And it's not something that we're entitled to. Right. Um, I, like, I like to bring in the whole concept of gender, too, because you said something about the oil shock and how that is really what – drove women, I think you're implying that that's what drove women into the workforce in the 60s, mm -mm. 70s rather than feminism. Feminism actually allowed women without exactly. apology to go into the workforce. Exactly, which and is, it, a, which is an, a good, an absolutely unremittingly good thing. Right. Is, but it's not as if women in the 50s and 60s didn't work. They did. Exactly. Exactly. But it was not the social norm of needing two incomes in order to m maintain mm -hmm. a house. Which the economic survival of the middle class didn't depend on it. Right, right. And now it does. Now it does. Uh, well, and that's the and, it, and, and even that isn't enough anymore. I mean, that's right. that's what we're finding now is people are out of work uh, frequently and for longer periods of time. And the shock, the shock of this recession on generations, this is what this article in The Atlantic is about, is it's not just that this um, economic downturn is going to be a slower recovery and may even be a right. lost decade in terms of job growth. Mm -hmm. um, but the long-term economic impact of that, the mental impact that that has on the generation that's coming up, if you actually have no job or have tremendous job insecurity in the first 10 years of your adult life, as we those of us that graduated in the early <laughs> 1980s did. Yes, it stays with you, it doesn't it? It stays with you forever. And you uh -huh. you have a higher incidence of drinking. You have a higher incidence of staying in rotten jobs for longer. I can certainly attest to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the income gap stays the with you. income stays with you forever. stays with yeah. you for, for 40 years. Thank you, Boomer. <laughs> well, and th but that's the part that I think this article gets wrong. Because they they gloss over Generation X, 
and say that, you know, Generation X is painted with this wide brush of being cynical slackers who, you know, just uh, feel cheated by generational economics and, and so on and so forth. Right. And yet, isn't it interesting that nearly every blogger I know is Gen X? Yes. Or, or I would argue a cusp kid, yeah. one of those people in the born in that, that little weird inner zone. But I, I agree. Yep. Almost every blogger well, I know and the, blogs. And the cusp this kids, it's interesting you should say cusp kids because mm-hmm. um, a lot depends. If you were born between 1959 and 1965, uh-huh. a lot depends upon what um, birth order you were in at that time. <laughs> believe it. Well, no, I absolutely believe you. I absolutely believe you. There, I've, I've seen it in my own life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a big difference if you were born in 1963, which I was, mm-hmm. in being the sixth children, sixth child of a returning World War II veteran mm-hmm. who has, you know, gone and been the man in the gray flannel suit and had business and had a, had a wife and, uh, you know, a house in. Levittown and had six kids, and the sixth kid was born in 1963. Yep. That child's a boomer. Right. His dad was a GI. His mom didn't work. His mom, you know, he lived in yep. suburbia. He's now, got the boomer so, mentality. Absolutely comes up with the boomer mentality. I am. But. I am the oldest child of a couple, both of whom were born during the Depression, mm-hmm. and were too young to go to World War, go, go to World War II in any way, shape, or form. They're grade school students. Mm-hmm. And they're part of that lost generation. My parents are part of that lost generation that was born during the Depression mm-hmm. and were babies during the Depression and, and very young school children during World War II. The model that I grew up with as a child of those kind of parents is very different from someone whose parents were mm-hmm. 10, 15 years older, you know, 10, to 15 well, and years again, younger. I should say my parents I mean, were younger. In my case, I'm the seventh son of a seventh son, you know, <laughs> born under a call, and you blues guys out there know what I'm talking about. Man, I'm sticking to that story because I have to maintain my, you know, aura your of anonymity mystery. is yes, now fully. Yeah, um, but but you but you get back to the point of family structure, um, family context and structure, to, you know, influence um, the outcomes hugely. Um, Maybe so, we can get some email from bloggers as to what. What birth their generational order? family structure looks like in terms of it, birth it, order. It, it does matter. It really does. Because really if you, because if you know, getting back to the the discussion of sort of television as an ugly, you know, mirror darkly reflection of what's going on in the culture around us. If you plot what's happening on a line from you know large family in small town, relatively stable, not rich, but relatively stable. You know that that's a really sort of low pyramid that can sustain a lot of shock and recover from it. That's why we recover from the Depression. Not totally, but in large measure, we we had a fairly stable social order Mm -hmm. that nearly fell apart, of course. But you had these these pretty stable units at the base of society that could sustain a lot of shock. Now you have an inverted pyramid. Now you have have a, a family structure that since we went all in with a nuclear family, since we exercised the nuclear family option, mm-hmm. um, you have – and since that family structure started to fall apart, not only do you invent mythologies about the glorious past and the normality of that family, but you start inventing mythologies about what's going wrong and why it's mm-hmm. failing. Yeah. You start – as I said – as I was saying before, you start outsourcing 
um, the raising of children. Yeah, and you start, you start outsourcing everything. For what's you start happening to our society because kids today. There's, yeah, kids there's a, there's a mythology that that is um, lifted up about kids today, and mm-hmm. you know, oh, they're violent or they're crime ridden or it's it's schools are failing and so on and so forth, and it's all the fault of the mm-hmm. schools. <laughs> Or, or it's the fault of, you know, lack of prayer. Yeah. Or yep. it's the fault of your, you know, your your race. Yep. Because those people, you know how those people are. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's all of these, but the problem is inherent with the structure of the family. Mm-hmm. That The nuclear family simply cannot sustain the weight of society during uh, economic downturns. Yeah. It can't. It's not stable enough to do that, so it falls apart. But there's another and side to that that's very interesting to me that I've observed time and time again in my community, and mm-hmm. maybe you have in yours as well. And, and it's something that this, getting back to this Atlantic article, the, the rise of a completely matriarchal structure mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the only people that are involved in the family structure at all are women. Yes. And it's grandmothers and mothers, young mothers, and then Middle-aged women raising children together over and over again at my children's school where grandma will pick up the kids because mom's at work and mom will pick up the kids when grandma's at work. And all of the things that a nuclear family is supposed to do in terms Mm -hmm. of who's at work, who's with the kids, the balancing act, the the juggling act that people talked about in the 80s is now being done between women. Mm-hmm. Between generations and, and generational women. women, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and the and woman has a social security. The older woman has a social security check, and the yep. younger woman has Medicaid for the kid, and they're yep. managing to keep it all together through government. <laughs> <laughs> yes, government through, funds. Dirty are liberal feeding government this funds. kid, feeding mm-hmm. the kid. Because what are the two things a family must do as a machine? It must sustain its own economic viability and raise children. Yep. And the, the two, so you're that's the one things. phenomenon. The other phenomenon in my community that I see a lot are kids in their 20s mm-hmm. whose only financial responsibility is to pay for their car insurance and their <laughs> cell phone. Uh-huh. And they live oh. at home, and there is no job opportunity for them They're in for all. a very rude shock, yeah. Yeah, well, and mm-hmm. and the, this this article, again, talks about polling 20-year-olds Mm-hmm. And finding that you know they're watching reality TV, mm-hmm. uh, which is almost completely filmed in Southern California because that's mm-hmm. where it's cheap to do it. You know, just that's grab right. a bunch of crazy people and film them. Mm-hmm. All of them have all of the people on t- these reality shows are either completely insane or have a lot of money or both. Yeah, they are they are essentially rats fighting in a dumpster. Exactly, rats fighting in camera. a dumpster, but. Mm-hmm. They have access to funds. They have nice cars. They have beautiful sure. clothes. They're blonde. They're pretty. Mm-hmm. They have tans. They have the beach. Yeah. They have, uh, um, the... and they all have the latest, greatest cell phone in the world. Of course they do. And so, they are the, the natural expectation extension. of these kids that they they have pulled is, oh sure, I'm going to be making seventy five thousand dollars by the time I'm thirty, and I'm oh, going yeah. to have a completely fulfilling job, and mm-hmm. I'm going to turn down a job that offers me this X Y. X, Y, and Z amount of money because mm-hmm. it's not fulfilling to me. I didn't like the boss there. And yeah. so it, it, they talked about one uh, college president who was basically begging his graduates, and this is in the past year, begging his graduates, say yes. Say yes to every job you're offered. I'm <laughs> telling God's you, sakes. you've got to do it. If you don't yes. say yes 
to every job change, job job opportunity, switching jobs, moving jobs, moving up the ladder, switching jobs as you know every year up mm-hmm. so that you're you're getting promoted. Make sure you demand promotions. Make sure you demand change because if you're stagnant, your your income will be stagnant. You'll lose your job. You'll never have an opportunity to make any money for the rest of your life. That's right. And, and these kids are looking like, what are you talking about? You know? But he's he's got the mindset that he, that our generation has, which what, is, what, but he, and, and that's, oh my God, I mean, a job. Look, look at the, but look at these polar opposites. One yep. is there's no path except straight up. Yep. Yep. And the other one is, nah, I'll just hang out. Whatever comes comes. If I don't yep. like it, I'll blow it off. Yep. And you know, there's no, both of those. I, I would argue are suicidal. Yep. You know, yep. one is, you know, but. The, the pathology of the first path, the pathology of grabbing everything, taking every, you know, devoting yourself to your job completely yep. Yep. is the last step of the failure of the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it is the job becomes the family. I'm going to marry my job. Yes. And my coworkers are going to be my family. You and yes. I have both had bosses like that. I can guarantee, Absolutely. I'll bet you have. I'll bet you I've five had, bucks you have. I have had many bosses like that who assume, who simply demand that you subsume every impulse yep. every yep. activity every erg of energy has to go into the job yep. and and if you're not with the program then get the hell out of here right and you start noticing that lots of companies operate that way lots of companies demand oh. that you be on call 24 7 that used to be the well, province of technicians I now it's the province of everybody who, i had a boss who demanded that hourly workers be there 24 7 to work overtime for free Again, I had a meeting with her, and she said, there was a manager in this building who wouldn't do exactly what I did to get the work done. Mm-hmm. I believe her. Yeah. I absolutely believe yeah. her. And and that has that is why, you know, Walmart employees are called associates. And they and they get to work full-time at 26 hours a week. I mean, that's considered <laughs> full-time. Seriously, that's considered yes. full-time. Of course it's considered and, full-time. And they can be scheduled anytime they want. Uh-huh. Which leads me to another, really, we've been in a very good mood throughout this whole <laughs> podcast in terms of, uh, reading this, discussing this really depressing article, but mm-hmm. um, there are some villains in this, and there are, you know, one of the things that that one of the conclusions that I come to is that the obvious culprits that we never discuss that are real enemies of the family. I'm thinking the Bush tax cuts for the yes. rich, banking deregulation, yes, uh, the expansion of the abandonment in the 70s and 80s um, of pension plans for 401k and 403bs, which was done by Congress. Let's yes. face it, it was a tax yep. benefit uh, to businesses mm-hmm. to move uh, responsibility for retirement from uh, businesses. businesses to, <coughs> to the stock market, to individuals yeah. investing in the stock market. Right, right. You don't even bother to talk about whether or not it's, you know, it's good for America Mm-hmm. You simply talk about whether or not it's good for business. A lot of the problems, you know, sound, I know this is going to sound horribly socialist, but a really? lot of the problems. I know. It's frightening, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you shock me, Drift Glass. I, I know. I, I, uh, and because I'm, at heart, I'm, a, I'm kind of a capitalist. You know, I really do believe in value and I believe in merit. And I believe in people getting paid what they're worth. But I also believe it in an irreducible minimum social safety net to take care of people below which we cannot allow the country to fall. Mm-hmm. And if you if you simply you know walk the uh, all the trend lines back to 1980 for the entire the post war period 
the, the depression post-war period through the 80s, through 1980, you saw all boats rising. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that Kennedy-esque kind of, you know, everybody getting rich. And there were lots of reasons for that. They had, did not have much to do with or they didn't have a lot to do with our native ingenuity so much as they had to do with the fact that we were, you know, a, a huge industrial giant in a, in a globe where there was not, you know, the industrial base. We didn't have competition, exactly. Right. No competition. And we had vast natural resources. We had cheap labor and we had cheap energy, all those things. That's all true. But it was also the case that the top 1% of the work uh, of, of Americans did not get rich at hundreds of times the rate right. of everyone else. Right. And, and the tax structure allowed exactly. them to maintain exactly. that wealth at a, a much lower rate of taxation than everyone else paid. Yeah. I mean, and there's, the, a, there's going to be a post at Crooks and Liars today that talks about how the tax rate for the top 400 uh, wealthiest people in the world dropped from 29 to 16 percent. Yeah. And, under and it, under it, Bush Cheney. Just well, it, Astonishing. And it's, it's obscene. It is absolutely obscene. Yeah. The argument between, let's say, Eisenhower and Kennedy, mm-hmm. you know, the two icons of the good old days. Uh, Eisenhower's marginal tax rates were 90 percent ish for the top percents, and Kennedy lowered them to the 70s. Yep. You know, when, when you hear a conservative, you know, talking about Kennedy lowering taxes, yeah, he lowered them from 90 something to 70 something. Yeah. yeah. And he closed all the loopholes. Right. That was the other part. When Kennedy lowered taxes, he did so saying. In fact, he said this expressly that future generations of conservatives are going to come are going to come back and say that I just wanted to cut taxes for rich people, but that's not true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want I want them to pay more, and they're getting away with murder because they, they have, there are so many loopholes. Right, right. So we're going to lower tax rates rates into the 70s, and we're going to close all the loopholes because the rich are getting away with you know people like me are oh, getting yeah. away with paying nothing. Yeah. And so Kennedy, in effect, raised taxes on the rich. Yep. But it, the argument was always between that 70 and 90 percent, you know, 60 percent. And then Reagan comes along and drops it, you know, into the 30s, yeah. into the upper 20s. Reagan drastically slashed taxes. And at the same time that he drastically eliminated regulations. And, you know, if supply side economics weren't complete farce, you would have seen everyone's trend lines go up. That's not what you saw. That's not what you saw. And it was also the beginning of just total denial of truth. How how do you communicate all of this to, and I I know you don't have a lot of respect for this group, but Uh, (laughs) how do you hmm. communicate all of this to the average American voter? Um, You don't. (laughs) Well, I think think there is a way, because I think there is a, a way that we can have progressive populism in this country. One way is to focus on the money. And you look at someone like Dick Cheney and you say, look, Dick Cheney didn't have to fight in any wars, didn't uh-huh. have to pay for any wars with his budget, any of his wars with his budgets, and didn't have to pay any of his wars with his taxes. Yep. So it was a complete lack of accountability or responsibility for the wars that made him rich. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I, 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 I very much agree with the messaging. Mm-hmm. What I what I have absolutely lost faith in mm-hmm. is the delivery system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't believe yeah, that David Gregory would never say that to Dick Cheney. It, the, the, <laughs> Ever exactly exactly yeah. that being the point that that it is it is not true that um, the editorial page of the New York Times controls mainstream America, but what it does do is it frames the debate. Yep. 
Yep. That's where that's where the the terms of discussion are set. David Brooks every day sets the terms of the mm-hmm. conservative mm-hmm. argument mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for certain types of people in this country. And David Gregory does the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And whoever the hell is taking over. Yeah, and Mark Shields is never going to dope slap David no. Brooks and say you're no. the problem because both of and, them are get are at the trow. Eating from eating the same and, slop from PBS. Exactly, <laughs> and this is where I I really and that's know, some one of the days, better news shows on TV. So it is, but this is where some days I just sort of shrug and say, you know, to screw it, I'm going to go, you know, become uh, <laughs> a mechanic someplace and give this all up mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. At, at some point I get I I must admit I get to be very depressed mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you know I can I can. See, I can watch, and I've read, for and I, I pick on David Brooks because he's there, and he is doing a terrible, bad, terribly bad job, and he's doing. I miss having a good conservative to debate with, mm-hmm. an honest intellectual debate with a real conservative. But, but it doesn't matter how right we are, Blue Gal. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many different ways and how many different times we prove the, the magic, you know, the magic combination of words. That will somehow open their eyes yeah. is never going to happen yeah. because we're never going to be given uh, access to the communication medium. Mm-hmm. We're never going to be on the networks. We're never going to be writing for the New York Times. We're never going to be writing for Time Magazine. We're never going to be Bill Crystal who can hop from you right. know one the New York failure Times. to another. Yeah. Right. one right. massive failure to another, but right across you know he goes from Fox to Time Magazine right. to the New York mm-hmm. Times to the Washington Post. And I'm like, who who does that? And, and if your resume said the f- kind of failures that Crystal has had, just doing his job, yeah, factual errors, you know, who in, in no other profession, no, no other you, profession, no one, no one else would be able to get away with that. You would be you would be thrown into the street. Yeah. But that is not true of our media. Yeah. The mass media simply will not ever call its own failure to. Attention, yeah. and they will simply never acknowledge the fact that they've made a horrible mistake we because it to, isn't about. Yep. We yes. have to end on that unhappy okay. note, except to say that uh, Rachel Maddow did point out the horrific history of the filibuster and how this is just <laughs> destroying America. The filibuster yeah. is destroying America, and the mainstream media is starting to pay attention and. It was wonderful this week to watch her glee. <laughs> Did you know this was picked up by this media and this media, and they're actually talking about it? I'm so excited. And I, you could tell she was genuinely surprised that she wasn't I, talking into a liberal echo chamber that actually people in the larger media. Um, she does give me hope. You know, yeah. uh, Rachel Maddow is the one person out there. It is like seeing Cindy Lou Who in a Saw movie. Yeah. You, you know, she's the exception that proves the rule. She also has a wonderful relationship with bloggers, and and she's someone who, because she's got so much talent in terms of broadcasting, I never feel as though there but for the grace of God she would become a, one of us. Right. Uh, on the contrary, she is one of us. Yes, exactly. And, and there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with being one of no, us. No, there you isn't. Know, it's pretty fabulous. And we <coughs> want to take this opportunity to thank – those listeners who have contributed to our fundraiser. We need money to make this show possible. Uh, It is not free. The podcasting service is not free. Uh, So we appreciate the support. Those of you who have dropped five bucks in the hat uh, over at my blog, that's where the fundraiser is taking place at the moment. Uh, Uh We understand that Driftglass is going to have a button up at at his place shortly. Very soon. 
And as soon as the, uh, all the so bankers and all the old men paid off. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. thank you very much for your for your support and your contributions. Very much so. Uh, thank you. We very also much. would love to hear from you via email at DG for Driftglass, BG for Bluegal, podcast, that's DGBG podcast, all one word, at mm-hmm. gmail.com. And yes, if you yeah. write us at that address, we will feel free to yes. use your email on the air. Yes. Yay. <laughs> yes, we will. Well, play us out, slightly depressed internet <laughs> kitty. Is that how we're going to end? <laughs> well, I, I, I can. I think it's important for us, people who read us, and, and people who we read, um, are are themselves when they write. Yeah. My favorite writers, my favorite broadcasters, are always themselves. Yeah. And I think you know it's it is as as, as long term hopeful as I am for the future of my country, mm-hmm. and the future of my beliefs and the future of all good things. If if I am you know in the short term discouraged and depressed, uh, I think that is reflective of a lot of people who read us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's dishonest to pretend otherwise. Right. I'm not counseling you know failure and despair. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that. This is how I'm feeling today, folks. Yeah. I'm not feeling particularly upbeat about um, what's going on when I bang my head against the same wall I've been banging against for five years. But um, I will probably continue to bang on it yeah, because that's what a good liberal that, does. That's what good liberals do. Damn right. Damn right. And we are good liberals. Yes, we are. <laughs> and you so give me hope whether you like it or not. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> because when I <laughs> – when I feel down and depressed and hopeless about things and I go and read your blog and I think, oh, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. <laughs> you know? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't like to cast myself in the role of cheerleader, no. but I have gotten many encouraging, many delightful emails from readers uh, who have said, thank you for putting the way I was feeling in, in language that made sense to me. And that's our job. That's so our job I, I – our job is to is to you know the I forget the, the writer who said it but it is the job of the writer to say here I am here's what this place looks like to me today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what that's what I believe the, the job of a writer and a, a communicator is to tell to honestly convey what the world looks like to me today how I feel about it and what's going on play us out internet kitty play us out internet kitty <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is produced under a Creative Commons license, copyright 2010, Drift Glass Blue Gal Podcast.